Our greatest fear is of losing control. Above all, of losing control of ourselves. Welcome back to Pieces of Books. I'm your host, Delima. The podcast is an intro music now. Very jazzy, very cool to me, though. <laughs> Woohoo! What do you think? It's the same instrument that I use for the trailer audio. I adore jazz music. I find it very calming and cool, including the ones that sounded as if they were just throwing notes and melodies in. You know the ones that goes, you know, like that. I thought, I thought it would be very fitting to include jazzy tunes into the trailer and make it the same for the intro music. Anyway, it's been a long time since the last episode. I know I said that I will try to upload as soon as I can, but here's the thing: I got a new job sometime last March. It was quite a level up from my previous one and required a lot of my attention. I know there there aren't like many, but if there was at least anyone who was waiting for another episode from this podcast, I want to say that I'm sorry. Before we start, don't forget to follow Pieces of Books podcast and give this episode a like. I also have published two episodes ahead, so go ahead and give it a listen as well. Right. So, what are you guys obsessing about lately? Anything? Movies, books, bags, food, or a person, perhaps? I hope it's a healthy type of obsession, though, in which you're pouring your undivided attention towards them or being absolutely available by supporting them. Or if it's in the case of role models, someone or a group of people you looked up to, you're obsessed, quote, in a way that you admired their achievements and what they've contributed to the society, and it became a motivation for you to do the same. For me, I've always liked skincare stuff, such as facial wash. Oil cleanser, moisturizer, serum, and all that. But it was only this month that I got to find a brand which my skin can absolutely deal with. I've been obsessed with that brand onwards, so I bought a lot of their stuff. Obsessing, I think, can be derived positively or negatively according to the context and the behavior the person was doing. Obsessing, quote, about something that brings you joy in a good way, I think it should be supported. And as long as you're doing it in a healthy amount and ways, you know how you're obsessed in being successful. Anything successful meant in your personal interpretation, and you've done all you could to achieve the goal. See, that's the kind of good or healthy obsession I think people should strive for for the good things. But we can't always have the good things, can we? What about the other side of obsession, the negative one that can turn people's way of thinking to derail, justifying anything they could. Do to achieve the end goal. Obsessing over a person or an idea can quickly become unhealthy if one didn't try to be careful or see it from a normal perspective. 
See, the reason why I mention obsession this time is because I think the story that I'm about to discuss involved a particular amount of unhealthy obsession from a person towards things and other people. Right before the intro, there were opening words that I've mentioned, which I quoted from a book by Rod Dahl. Yes, Rod Dahl, the author who was popular for his children's stories, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as a prime example. Most possibly, some people have acknowledged that Dahl didn't just write quirky children's stories. He also wrote some stories meant to be consumed by mature audiences. Well, if you were like me, who had just found out a couple of years back that he also wrote for the mature audience, you must have been surprised to find out about this. Or maybe not. Maybe you're not that surprised. Maybe you would just be like, oh, really? Cool. Okay. But anyway, yes, I've just found out about this. Growing up, I thought he was a writer solely focusing on quirky children's stories. I kid you not. I read his pieces a lot while I was studying English when I was younger. I was only nine years old. I used to enroll in these intensive English courses off school hours. So I had to go to these extra classes every Monday and Thursday after school. The courses started off with listening and speaking exercises. I had to listen to a CD in which two speakers, male and female, took turns reading English words and I had to recite it out loud. There were also times when I had to answer the silence of those speakers. They purposefully did that so the students would take the initiation. After the listening and speaking came writing and more speaking. I was given like some sort of a leaflet papers. It was five pages long and it contained short stories like about 100 to 150 words each. I had to read the story twice, once out loud for the speaking exercise and another so that I could understand thoroughly in order to answer the questions on the page. Being Indonesian, obviously English wasn't my first language. And at that time, comprehensiveness was a challenge for me. I would make a few mistakes while answering, giving no correlation whatsoever towards the question. It got better with time though. After that, I sent the papers to the teacher and waited for it to be graded. During that time, during the time the student had to wait for the papers to be graded, it was emphasized that we should not just loiter around waiting, but instead we should pick up any English book from the shelf and read it. The higher the level of the course, that meant the student could pick up harder books to read, less pictures, more paragraphs. When I was still at the basic levels, I was fond of colorful books like The Rainbow Fish and books with minimalistic yet intriguing covers like The Little Prince. As I was going to higher courses level, I was more encouraged to pick up books that were more than 200 pages long. They have the classic titles like Moby Dick, Tom Sawyer, and of course the author whose book I'm going to discuss today, Rod Dahl. They had the fantastic Mr. Fox, fun, Matilda, and James and the Giant Peach on the Shelf. That time was an introduction of Rod Dahl's works for me, and I loved every single part of it. The stories, the characters, and also the illustration. Do you remember how their figures were always skinny and sickly looking, with strands of hair that looked like hay? Being a kid, I too was also intrigued by the vibrant covers. I remember reading the version of James and the Giant Peach with the cover decorated with all the characters, James, the Grasshopper, Centipede, Miss Spider, and others. I failed to remember the characters' names after so many years. They were standing atop the giant peach. It was like coral-ish orange, and the background was blue. 
Hold on, let me check. It was the cover illustrated by Quentin Blake. Yes, that one. So, even at that age, I was already having an impression that Rod Dahl was a master in writing children's stories. His ideas and the illustration collaboration helped fuel my interest further. Moving on to my revelation on Dahl not only writing stories for children, I was at an annual book fair a few years ago. It was every bibliophile dream come true, truly. Everything was on sale. They had almost everything. From sci-fi, crime, young adult, romance, the classics. I said almost because I couldn't find some of the books on my to-read list. Oh, but yes, I was still freaking out, quite frankly. So, after that, like the next year after they held it for the two or third time in my city, I spotted two peculiar books with Rod Dahl's name credited on the cover. Obviously, I picked it up, inquiring about it very closely, and the title said Lust, while the other one was Cruelty. To be frank, I'm a sucker for pre-book covers. Most of the time, I would always buy a book based on its cover. Those books, especially Lust, have pretty covers. It was pink and contrasted by the white background. I just had to buy it. And the other one followed right through because I thought, what if the stories are good and I ended up regretting not buying it? I was standing for quite a long time in one of the narrow rows, having thoughts of this and that. Hang on, I said to myself, didn't Roald Dahl only write children's stories? This is the same author whose books I've read many years back in my old English course, right? I put it into the card and made a purchase. I drove home and I was just simply excited. Couldn't wait to read it. Then came the next book fair the following year. I went there again as scheduled. Yes, I scheduled it with one of my friends. We're always just so giddy about the book fair. So many books, so cheap. Ah. <laughs> so I was there. I spotted the last book once more. And if you Google these book collections, you'll realize that they have the same concept for the cover. A picture in the middle dominantly white background. The title font was printed bigger at the bottom to catch the eye. Simple and minimalistic design. Very pretty. When I got the previous two, I thought that that was it. So when I spotted six more of them, I was like, oh, there are more than two? So yeah, I bought it all. And this was when we were in the cusp of a pandemic. It was reported on the news, but it hadn't reached where I live yet. People were still pretty chill. But I was already worried that that might be the last time I could go to a book fair, so I just went ahead and bought a book. Besides Lust and Cruelty, six others are titled War, Deception, Trickery, Innocence, Fear, and Madness. The book that I'm going to talk about today is called Madness. See, this is when the thing about obsession that I talked about earlier plays a role. I think it was separated by a very thin line. When done wrong, obsession only had a very thin line separating it from madness. Normally, we would strive to distance ourselves from the madness state, but here's the thing. I believe that we always have a little bit of it. Always. When it didn't show, that's because we're distracted with other things that kept us grounded, occupied. For example, for some workaholics, not working for a period of time will drive them to madness. Hence, they take it out on something, whether they're out to exercise or cook, or at least move and do something, because I took it that workaholics didn't seem like they could just leisurely waste their weekends away buying takeouts and watching Netflix all day, right? Too specific, Dale, too specific. 
But yes, I do believe that everybody has a bit of madness inside of them that they don't know. For example, I would absolutely break out into an ugly road rage on a Saturday because why should I go through bad traffic when I was only going out to grab a coffee? Give me a break, please, it's my day off. But we can always control our madness again because we fear losing control. Fearing the consequences of losing control, fearing the things that would be sacrificed while we were losing it. So if I went ahead and just followed the road rage, I would either be honking at other drivers during inconvenience, or I would be so mad that I drove recklessly and would have caused a traffic accident. I could be injured, I could injure other people, or worse, there would be fatalities. So what did I do? I took a deep breath and just let it go. It's just a bad traffic. The coffee can wait. That would be the simplest example. But sometimes, I think, some people didn't realize that they had lost it. The control of themselves. They went and did things that were wrong, that they have justified in a very twisted way of thinking, to be dealt with as if it was fine. In this book by Rodal titled Madness, there are 10 unsettling tales of unexpected madness. Rodal explores what happens when we let go of our sanity. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about one of those 10 tales. It's called The Landlady. It was first published in The New Yorker, November 28, 1959. I'm just going to go ahead and bring you the spoiler warning if you wanted to read the book. If you just happened to stumble on this podcast and decided that, well, what the hell, I just listened to the story, then by all means. So as mentioned briefly in the book summary, this particular landlady doesn't seem to want any of her guests to leave. We followed the main character named Billy Weaver, a 17-years-old guy who wanted to travel to Bath from London. Billy had arrived in Bath looking for cheap inns to stay at, so he asked around if there was any such thing taking people in. Now, I found a term porter that apparently British people used to mention the person carrying out luggage or loads, especially in a railroad station, airport, or hotel. Never really knew what to call them specifically. I've always thought of them as some staff at the airport or staff at the station. As for hotels, I usually call them bellboys. So, Billy was asking a porter at the train station since he had just gotten off the train from London. The porter recommended him to try the Bell and Dragon, the name of the particularly chip inn he was looking for. Billy set off to find that Bell and Dragon. He's new in town and doesn't have any friends there, so he walked down the path alone. At one point, Billy had reached a white street with a line of identical tall houses on each side. These houses were described as having porches and pillars, four or five steps going up to the front doors. There was a time when that particular neighborhood was considered the lavish or, you know, the A-plus type of neighborhood, but that certainly wasn't the case anymore. Our main character could see that the paint was peeling off on the doors and windows, and in general, these houses just seemed neglected. Suddenly, Billy spotted a downstairs window, shined by a street lamp. There was a printed notice plastered on the glass that said, Bed and Breakfast. Underneath it stood a vase of yellow chrysanthemum flowers. Pretty. So Billy took notice of it and approached the building. He saw green-colored curtains hanging down on either side. He took a peek inside the building. There was a bright fire burning in the fireplace. Nearby spread a carpet. There was a dachshund dog curled up on it. Is that the way? Is that the correct way to pronounce it? Dachshund? 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 
having its nose tucked into its belly. You know this exact position. Imagine how cute a dog looked like. Oh, it's a sausage dog, right? Anyways, there was also a baby grand piano, big sofa, and plump armchairs inside. At one of the corners, Billy also spotted a large parrot perched inside a cage. All in all, it was a cozy house from the description. Billy too agreed on this conclusion, but he was hesitant. He thought about the inn, the people he would meet there, you know, the Bell and Dragon, the cheaper price it would offer him. A boarding house slightly made him uncomfortable too. Billy was just a tiny bit frightened of them. So through this thought process, Billy was hovering by the house for two to three minutes in the cold, and he eventually decided to just walk on and check out the inn. However, the bed and breakfast notice was really enchanting him, so in the end, he came up to the door and pressed the bell. The response was immediate because Billy didn't even take his finger away from the bell for a split second when the door swung open, revealing a woman standing there. The woman invited him in, and Billy told her that he saw the notice. The woman seemed to be about forty-five or fifty years old, between that age. She gave Billy a warm, welcoming smile. She also had a round pink face and very gentle blue eyes. She muttered, "It's all ready for you, my dear," to Billy as he inquired about the availability of a room. The woman stated the price to Billy, which had already included a breakfast meal, and the latter thought that it was reasonable—certainly a pleasant rate in his judgment. Lord, Billy made his way in. He took off his hat, and the lady offered to take his coat. Inside the house, in the hallway, there were no other hats or coats, nor umbrellas or walking sticks. Apparently, Billy was the only visitor. This peculiar sight prompted Billy to say that he thought she would be swamped by visitors. To which she answered that of course she would, but she was just a bit picky. Then she repeated again that she was always ready about the room and all. She meant in case an acceptable young man comes along. She said, "Such a very great pleasure when now and again I open the door and I see someone standing there who is just exactly right." She said to a pause as she led ahead of Billy halfway up the stairs. Then she did something which I found alarmingly creepy. By this point, she turned around and smiled down at him, and then continued her pause phrase, "Like you." So she's like, "And I see someone standing there who is just exactly right, like you." Whilst her eyes traveled slowly all the way down the length of Billy's body to his feet and then up again, not gonna lie. When I first read the story, I thought that this would lead to a human trafficking story, but it wasn't. And I mean, human trafficking is already bad, but I think the next thing that would happen was certainly way worse. There were already some red flags in the beginning, in which if I were Billy Weaver, I I would have just totally fled the site as fast as I could. But also thinking, how the hell am I going to escape the situation? Though she was basically there throughout everything, and she would absolutely take notice if the visitors started to act weird, or get weirded out. Back to the story. This middle-aged woman then called Billy with Mister Perkins out of the blue. Billy corrected her, saying that his name is Weaver. After this whole ordeal, she finally left him to settle down by himself. Before she completely left him to himself, the woman made sure that she told him to sign the guest book. So of course Billy went down after that to sign the guest book. He wrote his name and address down, and then found two other names before his. Yes, only two. One was Christopher Mulholland, the other was Gregory Temple. The name Mulholland rang a bell. Billy tried to remember where he heard the name, and to no success. On a second thought, the name Temple too was also trying his memories. 
Billy tried saying the names aloud to help clear his muddled memory, and the landlady reappeared. They sound somehow familiar, Billy said. They do? How interesting, said the landlady. I'm almost positive I've heard those names before somewhere. Isn't that odd? Maybe it was in the newspapers. They weren't famous in any way, were they? Oh, no, I don't think they were famous. But they were incredibly handsome, both of them. They were tall and young and handsome, my dear, just exactly like you. Billy ignored this comment and decided to alter his attention back to the guest book. <laughs> he really just dodged her comment and was like, right, anyways. Billy was getting specific by this point. He noticed the dates those two names came into the house. The last entry, which was Temple's, was over two years ago. Mulholland's visit was even older, dated to more than three years ago. My dear Billy, these were all enough red flags, weren't they? I couldn't help but just pity a particular main character like this one. They were always just um, so slow and gullible. Like it took them a lot of time to put two and two together, you know what I mean? They would always end up dead or something. <laughs> like if they had just noticed it earlier, which they absolutely could. It was right in front of their eyes, which made it even more frustrating. Like, hello, Billy, my good man, get the hell out of there. Then he started again, bless his unsuspecting heart. Well, you see, both of these names, I not only seem to remember each one of them separately, but somehow or other, in some peculiar way, they both appear to be sort of connected together as well. No shit. <laughs> she was like, No, my dear, you're tripping. Come over and have some tea and biscuit. Billy was still strong with the names that rang a bell. He was still going on about how he saw it somewhere. Then he said, No, wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Mulholland. Christopher Mulholland. Wasn't that the name of the Eton schoolboy who was on a walking tour through the West Country? And all of a sudden, the landlady didn't pay any mind to this. She was busy preparing for Billy's cup of tea and biscuit, you know? So instead of responding to that statement, she offered him milk and sugar. And Billy, <laughs> bless this character, he was just like, yeah, wait a minute, I'm still thinking. Oh, yes, please, milk and sugar. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> now I think Billy was just really dense, you know? But then again, he was 17 years old. But then again, 17 years old couldn't be this dumb, no? Like, you know how you got a feeling of something that's just weird and not right from the get-go, and you would just turn quiet and study your surroundings to plan an escape strategy? Billy was just having none of those. Why is that? How can a person be so unguarded? I couldn't relate. One thing to another. Billy tried to stay positive about this whole thing, even though the weirdness had felt that it would transition into something even weirder. He said that Mulholland probably left some time ago. He was positive then that he had seen them in a newspaper, in the headlines. What does that tell you, Billy? Why would someone completely not famous enter the headline of a newspaper if they were not somehow, I don't know, dead or killed or missing? And then the landlady responded to what Billy said about um, the other two guests that already left some time ago. She said, she responded this, left, she said, arching her brows. But my dear boy, he never left. He's still here. Mr. Temple is also here. They're on the fourth floor, both of them together. Now I also gave her the benefit of the doubt. 
I thought the two were really just up there sharing the floor. <laughs> and she was just a bit crazy in the head is all. However, Billy started to get scared of her by this point, And my judgment just swerved quickly like, oh shit, what if she killed the both of them and stored their bodies on the fourth floor? Right? So I just kept on reading and constantly being placed at the edge of my seat. The landlady went on and asked him about how old he is. Billy answered that he was 17. 17, she cried. Oh, it's the perfect age. Mr. Mulholland was also 17, but I think he was a trifle shorter than you are. In fact, I'm sure he was, and his teeth weren't quite so white. You have the most beautiful teeth, Mr. Weaver, did you know that? Billy mentioned about getting masses of fillings in them at the back, but she ignored this by continuing. Mr. Temple, of course, was a little older. He was actually 28, and yet I would never have guessed it if he hadn't told me. There wasn't a blemish on his body. A what? Billy said. His skin was just like a baby's. Notice how she used past tense consistently throughout her description of these two guys, which by the way sounded as if they were some sort of precious marbled meat she purchased at the butcher. I think Billy knew that by that moment he'd have no way out, but he was still just as dense because he kept pointing out the obvious. Like for this upcoming scene, Billy just had to point out the parrot that he saw earlier from the window. That parrot, he said. You know something? It had me completely fooled when I first saw it in the far corner of the room. I could have sworn it was alive. Alas, no longer, the landlady said. It's most terribly clever the way it's been done. It doesn't look in the least bit dead. Who did it? I did, she answered. She also pointed out that she did the same thing to the curled up Dachshund dog curled up on the carpet. Billy touched it gently to confirm the stillness of a persevered dog corpse and felt the back was hard and cold. When he pushed the hair to one side with his fingers, he could see the skin underneath. It's grayish black and dry. Billy was admiring her skills through all of this, saying things like, must be difficult to do that. The landlady said that it wasn't difficult after all. I stuff all my little pets myself when they pass away, she said. Then she made sure to know that he had signed the guest book, to which Billy said he had. That's good, she exclaimed, because later on, if I happened to forget what you were called, I could always come down and look it up. Excuse my asking, Billy eventually said. I think he was already scared shitless by this point. All those remarks about her skills in persevering corpses and him feigning calmness were his last but pathetic attempts. We absolutely know what happened with Mulholland Temple by now, don't we? So he said then, excuse my asking, but haven't there been any other guests here except them in the last two or three years? In the midst of all of this, the landlady was still drinking her cup of tea. She was like so chill. Then she tilted her head slightly to the left, looked up at him out of the corners of her eyes, and gave him another gentle smile. No, my dear, she said. Only you. The story ended there, and Dahl didn't have to go out of his way to explain to us what happened eventually, right? Although I did wonder what to become of Billy Weaver. Did he manage to escape? Did somehow his flattery soften the Madeline lady and make her let him go? Unlikely. Because she seemed to like her stuffed pets, quote, young and cute, like the parrot and the dog. They were cute, even though they were most definitely not young anymore. Mr. Temple was 28, but he had skin as soft as a baby's. So she chose him and kept him stored, like a doll collection. 
I don't know. If I was Billy, I would have ran the second that door opened for me, not even a few seconds after I pressed the doorbell. Maybe it was also a part of my anxiety. But if a person just opened the door straight after the doorbell was pressed and after the set knocker was hovering outside, that could only mean that they were waiting and watching. Am I right? They knew that this knocker was outside, hesitating, but eventually lured in. They couldn't mask their excitement in knowing that they would do vile things to the knocker and just jumped at the opportunity like a hungry lion seeing a gazelle. This tale is seriously just haunting me. Like, what was the reason, Miss Mamlin lady? She's a psychopath, that's for sure. Talking about her guests very calmly and measuring their cuteness by the lack of blemishes on their skin or how young they were, the bit where she cried 17 was very predatory. <laughs> So creepy. But Billy Weaver, our protagonist, was a sad case. A really sad case, yes. He had a big dream, at least. At the beginning of the story, it was described that he took example of the big, brisk man at the office in Bath. I assumed that he went there to take up a starting job and pursue his life, starting anew. But then he walked straight into a real human dual house, courtesy of a mad landlady. Now, wait a minute. I take back what I said about the doorbell. The neighborhood itself was already a red flag. The general vibe of fallen from greatness, peeled off pain, and neglected appearance. It was already enough, Billy Weaver. Sketchy neighborhood? Yep, time to leave. I like to think that the landlady experimented first with the parrot and the dog, but then it escalated somehow. The motive we will never know because there was not much about her other than batshit crazy in the story. Maybe the death of her parrot completely wrapped her in sadness. Because she was lonely in such a quiet, sketchy neighborhood. And then... Not too long after that, her dachshund passed away, so she was devastated. The landlady probably offered a bed and breakfast deal at first to invite people in so that she could have someone to talk to. But as they were about to go, you know, go about their lives, she couldn't bear to part and be alone again with her two dead pets. Maybe it's from there. Maybe at first it started from loneliness and then possessiveness. You know? What do you think? I think so. I don't know. She was probably persuading them to stay, but then they got weirded out, because why would they stay in a complete stranger's house forever? The landlady snapped and just killed them, probably poison or something blunt to the head. She seemed handy with the stuffing and perseverance, so she was medically educated. Perhaps she was a nurse at the time, or a doctor. She could be both. She could be anything. She could be just a psycho and just learn about medical experience. I don't know. She was probably she was probably in the medical industry, you know, because she was educated in that, persevering, like forensics. There were so many possibilities here to unfold. Mr. Doll, why did you just give us the ending and call it a day? Rest in peace, though. All in all, 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10 because I couldn't stand Billy's dumbass. <laughs> but the flow was amazing. It started with creepiness, yes, but... Doll pulled you back in with Billy. It influenced me too because I gave the landlady the benefit of the doubt to in the middle. But then Billy just went overboard with his positive thinking and completely ignored the fact that he was facing a cold-blooded, young men adoring psychopath. See, this is see this is the thing with madness. If my theory was correct, and I do hold it as a base to support how she acted, the landlady, is that it took over slowly. First time it must have bugged her. What she was supposed to do was bury her pets but she didn't because she loved them too much. So she kept their dead bodies around. The landlady must have thought, no, that's, no, that's okay. I love them, which meant this is okay, which in fact it is not. 
right? Like she succumbed to it. She failed to see how not okay her little action was in the beginning. Third justification, she started doing that to bigger victims, her visitors who were supposed to leave, because not only were they not her family, they're also not her pets. Like she claimed a couple of praises back, I stuff all my little pets myself when they pass away. But this is such a thought-provoking short tale, with a storytelling method which I deeply admired though. If you haven't already, Give Madness by Roald Dahl a peek, it's fantastic. My favorite one close behind the landlady is another tale right after it, called Pig. Just as disturbing, if not more, but with a deep message as well. Also, oh, I just remembered. This whole getting into a snake den and never finding their way back out again reminds me of a Netflix series called The Serpent. Have you seen it? It's a true story about the diabolical criminal, Charles Sobrach, and all his doings of kidnapping, poisoning, and murder in the 70s. It was sick. It was psycho psychopathical. Is that a word? Well, from the series, Charles Sobrach is a psychopath. Uh, let's just say that he didn't bat an eye while doing all these things, all these bad things. And he had a sidekick, uh, a woman named Mary Leclerc or something like that. She was, she was also known as Monique. She was played by Jenna Coleman on The Serpent. She was so pretty. And the clothes that she was wearing. Oh my god. Oh my god, especially the one, the, the one suit, uh, the turquoise one that she wore on the very first episode. It was just so beautiful. And she's so, and she's also beautiful too. So like, I mainly watched that series for her. <laughs> but also, you know, finding along the way that there was a man named Charles Sobraj, who was so diabolical and very arrogant that he thought he couldn't be touched by the law. But eventually he could. So, how did it end up to be a crime discussion? I don't know. Maybe it was just it was because some killings were involved. Well, the landlady stuffed this man that were coming to to her house. I don't think that she murdered her pets, but she she absolutely killed those two men, Mulholland and Temple. I'm one hundred percent sure that she killed those two men, and then she stuffed their bodies. And persevered them. It's just so sick how she kept their names on the guest book. And then she went along and said to Billy. So that when I happened to forget what you were called. I would just come down and look it up. Like it was no big deal. This is, this is a cold-blooded murderer here. I'm very passionate about true crime stories. And then this... This story, this story about the landlady and her thirst for handsome young men. If this is were to be developed, it would be such a good true crime story. Think about it for a second. I don't know how to write it. I have a lot in my mind right now. I have a lot to say about this story, but then maybe maybe I could try to write it. Maybe I could try write this story, develop it somehow. Mr. Dahl, if you if you if you if you hear this from the afterlife, please give me your permission. <laughs> I think it's a very good story with a chance of developing on itself. Like it doesn't speak much, it doesn't explain too much, but it keeps you it keeps you waiting, it keeps you anticipating. It's a good story if it has that element to me. So right. 
after the a recommendation of a true crime story on Netflix, and then me reviewing again about the story itself, about the landlady story itself, we're we're here. We're reaching the end of the episode. Once again, don't forget to follow the podcast and like this episode. I'm also on Instagram. It's Peeves of Books. That's pieces, but the C is replaced with a V. So Peeves of Books. I didn't get the original username, so. Or email me at Delimas Book Opinions. That, that's D-E-L-I-M-A-S Book Opinions at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye-bye.